Chapter Eleven of *The Toxin of Revolt* and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K Hand. *The Toxin of Revolt* and Other Essays by Brander Matthews. Chapter Eleven: Cosmopolitan Cookery. One not long ago i chanced to see in a new york newspaper a doleful letter from a british subject temporarily marooned on manhattan island in which he deplored and denounced american cookery he went so far as to deny us any skill whatever in the art without which men may not live as i read this perfervid epistle due it may be to the indigestion provoked by the fried beefsteak in a one-night town hotel I smiled at the memory of other and equally unrestrained outcries which I had heard from Americans in Paris, protesting that they couldn't get anything fit to eat in the City of Light. These wandering fellow-countrymen of mine felt themselves defrauded at being unable to order cornbread and beaten biscuit, codfish balls and buckwheat cakes, when they sat themselves down in the breakfast-room of their Parisian hotel. Recalling these Yankee ululations, I understood the cockney whales, and I wondered what British dainty it was that the straying Londoner had failed to find in New York. Was it veal and ham pie, that substantial, solid, or jugged hare, that unspeakable delicacy? And there came to mind also a recollection of a bitter protest I had once heard from the lips of a Parisian who was spending a miserable fortnight in London, and who was vociferous, beyond the habit of his courteous countrymen, in his denunciation of those twin delights of the English dinner-table, the mint sauce with which the British desecrate their otherwise excellent roast lamb, and the bread sauce with which they contaminate their otherwise excellent partridge. This exacerbated Frenchman declared that these two aids to indigestion were indefensible outrages on the gustatory organs and on the alimentary canal. It is difficult not to sympathize more or less with any fellow human being let loose in a foreign land, deprived of the dishes to which he is accustomed, and offended by culinary offerings from which his stomach revolts. Yet it is difficult also not to confess that the woeful complaint of the wandering stranger, be he Briton in the United States, American in France, or Frenchman in the British Isles, is really unreasonable. There is no cosmopolitan standard of right and wrong in gastronomic aesthetics if jugged hare and veal ham pie sauce made of mint and sauce mashed out of bread happen to please the palates of the british who shall deny them the privilege of compounding these delectable dishes caveat emptor let the foreigner beware it is for him to guard himself against insidious results to his digestive habits every country has the dishes it desires and the wanderer will do well to experiment cautiously and to be guided thereafter by this experience none but the brave deserve the fare that will satisfy their appetites the one wise plan is to pick out of the local dietary the few or the many articles which may please or at least not offend our own likings resolutely rejecting all alien dishes offensive to our taste no matter how volubly these outlandish offerings may be vaunted by their vendors there is no more obligation upon a frenchman in scotland to partake of haggis than there is upon a Scot in Paris to make a meal on frog's legs. It is wise also to recognize the fact that the cooking of every country has merits of its own, 
if only we are open-minded enough to perceive them it is well for the untraveled american in paris to forego the hope and expectation of a chicken fried in cream maryland style and to risk himself in the exploration of poulet saute a la marengo probably he will not regret this gastronomic substitution it is well also for the intrepid english voyager surveying the united states from a car window to overcome his first impression and to taste terrapin for he may find it not half so nasty as it looks as the reverend mr hawise once assured his wife and even the gaul ill at ease in great britain will profit by the willingness to live and learn and by the courage which sustains faith he may come in time to a keen appreciation of the chump chop an article of food which is truly insular since in shape it looks very like a map of england for the hardy traveller in foreign parts risking himself in strange restaurants with unknown names on the bill of fare there is no better motto than nothing venture nothing have a difference of taste in jests is a great strain on the affections said george eliot and so is a difference in taste in dishes tell me what a man laughs at and i will tell you what he is tell me also what he eats and i can at least make a guess as to what manner of man he is perhaps there is here a suggestion for the league of nations and one clause of the covenant might assert the right of every country to exercise self-determination in all matters of cookery the signers of this treaty of peace must remember that as french is still the language of diplomacy so also is the cookery of france still the standard by which that of other countries is measured and the friendly foreigners invading paris will do well to try modestly to discover the reason why the culinary artists of france are justly entitled chefs two in his most suggestive discussion of food and feeding the late sir henry thompson the distinguished surgeon of london celebrated also for his octaves as he called his little dinners of eight pointed out clearly the essential difference between the racial cookery of the french and that of the english the british isles have a damp climate with frequent rain resulting in luxuriant grass which provides an ideal provender for cattle so it is that in england beef and mutton are likely to be the best of their kind and therefore the british cook's sole duty is to present these meats unadorned so that the full flavor of the flesh may be preserved this is to say that the proper effort of the british artist in the kitchen is directed toward the stark simplicity which gives us plain roast beef and plain roast lamb the naked beefsteak and the unclothed mutton chop the bare pheasant and the bare haunch of venison each of them sufficient unto itself and not needing any auxiliary sauce british cookery at its best is beauty unadorned france is less rainy and the breeding of cattle has not been so careful there as it has been in england with the result that beef and mutton are likely to be somewhat inferior and therefore it is the prime duty of the french artist in the kitchen to stimulate the appetite and help it to be satisfied with meats which may be a little tough and even stringy what is true of beef and mutton is also true of fish paris is three or four hours from the sea and the fish does not always arrive there in the most perfect condition and therefore their cook is tempted to disguise a possible lack of freshness by the piquancy of his sauces London, on the other hand, is in fact what the American schoolgirl declared it to be in her geography examination. London is the capital of a small island off the coast of France. Because it is the capital of a small island, set in a silver sea, London gets its fish in the best possible condition, 
and therefore it is the duty of the english cook to present fish with the inexorable simplicity with which she presents beef and mutton woe betide her if she venture upon any alien sauce that way madness lies it is the old antithesis between art and nature the british cook is excellent when she lets well enough alone and the french cook is wise in his generation when he makes the best of the material at his disposition there are nine and sixty ways of writing tribal lays and every single one of them is right the best trained palate will find it difficult to declare which is the more truly satisfactory the simple fried sole which one can count upon anywhere and everywhere in england and the more complicated sole marguerite or sole mornay final rewards of a visit to paris so it is impossible to accord precedence either to the roast beef of old england or to the filet chateaubriand of france when this latter dish is truly what it pretends to be that is to say when a thick tenderloin has been broiled between two slices of inferior beef thus retaining all its own juice even absorbing that of its twin coverings in france cookery like millinery is one of the fine arts and art is long complaint is made in paris that the culinary art is falling from the high estate to which it had attained in the nineteenth century for this decadence if decadence there be we are supplied with two reasons first because the cooks themselves are in a hurry to reap the reward of the artist and are not now willing to serve the long and arduous apprenticeship which is the only road to a complete mastery of the mysteries of the craft and second because the public is also in a hurry indisposed to order in advance and so to allow the full time necessary for the preparation of a gastronomic masterpiece of course the foreigners who flock to paris to get their fill of aesthetic sensations are the worst offenders but even the parisians themselves are unreasonable in speeding up the artist and in thus compelling him to improvise as it were to risk a hit or miss effect instead of achieving the flawless execution of a premeditated and perfectly combined bill of fare french cookery also suffers in another way from the invasion of the barbarians it is in paris that the culinary art has attained to its culmination and achieved the apex of its glory it is only in paris that the student of high aspiration and of ample inspiration can acquire its ultimate secrets but we all know that there are now abroad in the world a host of french cooks falsely so called who have never studied in the french capital and who are not even french being therefore devoid of the innate gift of the gaul these outlanders if we may so term them these intruders into the temple are likely to lack both the native endowment and the solid instruction without which there is only vanity and vexation of spirit they may on occasion cling to the letter of the law but they are wanting in understanding of its soul three i have sought to show that if the parisian despises the cookery of the londoner it is because he has failed to appreciate its peculiar excellence that is to say its simplicity and it would not be more difficult to explain that the englishman is in error when he condemns the cookery of the american there is bad cooking aplenty in the united states as there is also in great britain often due to an ignorant effort to imitate the imitable art of the french but just as english cooking is good when it conforms to its own traditions so american cookery can be excellent in its own way is the bouillabaisse of marseilles really more alluring than the clam chowder of cape cod of course if the french and british travelers in the united states expect to get their own special culinary successes they are foredoomed to disappointment we cannot set before them either fried sole or sole mornay because the unkind fate has deprived us of the sole itself 
but we can proffer them the planked shad and what better dish can there be we may go further and ask if any venturesome alien has really the right to look down on one of the humblest of our dishes corned beef hash when it has been compounded by competent hands and who shall decry the equally humble codfish ball when its flattened globe is the work of a born cook it is our misfortune now that we can no longer rest our case on the canvas back duck of sainted memory departed and deeply mourned and so nearly forgotten that the tale is told of a londoner at his first dinner in a new york hotel asking for the celebrated canvas back clam i doubt if anyone has yet done justice to the variety and to the merit of our sweet dishes has any other country in the world anything to compare with the strawberry shortcake when it is truly shortcake and not sponge cake when it is deluged with real cream and not desecrated with whipping cream and consider for a moment that invention of the puritans and the pilgrim fathers baked indian pudding with its indigenous flavor enhanced by hard sauce the pilgrim mother who originated that abiding delight deserves a monument more enduring than brass and yet sad to relate this truly american invention is unknown to the benighted britons that is if we may believe the possibly apocryphal tale of the english lady who protested when she first heard of this dish baked indian how horrible i knew you americans were savages but i didn't suspect that you were cannibals then there are our pies unhonored and unsung except by eugene field who once rhymed a lilting lyric in praise of apple pie and cheese full many a sinful notion conceived of foreign powers has come across the ocean to harm this land of ours and heresies called fashions have modestly effaced and baleful morbid passions corrupt our native taste o tempora o mores what profanations these that seek to dim the glories of apple pie and cheese the american apple pie is not the british apple tart far from it in fact the british apple tart is closely akin to what we know as the deep dish apple pie nor is the american apple pie at all like the french torte aux pommes which is a thin circular disc with a raised rim and no upper crust the american lemon meringue pie has been degraded and disgraced by base and fraudulent imitations seemingly concocted out of glue and soap suds and shoe leather but when it has been created by an inspired ebony artist with kinky curls bound up in a bandana it is indeed a good creature and there is pumpkin pie scorned by the highbrow but none the less welcome when it is also due to the deft touch of a sable craftswoman a friend of mine long deprived of this delicacy dear to his new england boyhood recently saw it upon the bill of fare of one of the fashionable hotels of new york and he was about to order it when he hesitated in doubt whether its adequate preparations was a possible feat for the presumably french pastry cook of that sumptuous hostelry he was promptly reassured by the head waiter we have an american to make our pumpkin pies and what's more he's a coon i confess that i wish i knew which pie it was pumpkin or apple lemon meringue or mince that emerson ordered on his trip to california evoking from a young lady in the party the surprised question why mr emerson do you eat pie to which the benignant philosopher is recorded to have responded my dear young lady what is pie for 
we do not often pause to recall the variety of the foodstuffs unknown to europe until after columbus had returned from his venturesome voyage across the western ocean there is tobacco if that can be called a foodstuff which may be doubtful no european or asiatic or african could smoke until the nicotian weed had been acclimated there is the sugar-cane no greek and roman could put sugar in his beverages until after a method had been discovered for making it out of the juice of the cane and the roman and the greek could enjoy only such sweet dishes as might be sweetened by honey even to this day maple sugar is almost unknown in europe indeed it is so little known that thackeray in the first edition of the virginians did not hesitate to describe it as being garnered in the autumn there is the tomato also and the potato and the turkey falsely believed to have come from the country from which it borrowed its name there is maize which we call indian corn and which is our most important food crop more important even than wheat it is used by the english only rarely under the name of corn flour and it is so unfamiliar to the irish that when cargoes of it were sent over from america during the famine the peasants died because they did not know how to make bread from what they termed yellow meal only in italy has indian corn been made as useful as in its native land apparently the italians never learnt how to prepare cornbread but one of the most popular dishes of the peasantry is polenta which is their equivalent of our hasty pudding when joel barlow was wandering around europe a century ago he recognized our homely american dish and he sang its praises in his unpretending poem the hasty pudding which lingers now in many a memory ignorant of its ambitious epic the columbiad the sweets of hasty pudding come dear bowl guide o'er my palate and inspire my soul the milk beside thee smoking from the kine its substance mingle married in with thine shall cool and temper the superior heat and save the pains of blowing while i eat but man more fickle the bold license claims in different realms to give thee different names thee the soft nations round the warm levant polenta call the french of course polente e'en in thy native regions now i blush to hear the pennsylvanians call thee mush on hudson's banks where men of belgic spawn insult and eat thee by the name sapon all spurious appellations void of truth i've better known thee from my earliest youth thy name is hasty pudding thus my sire was wont to greet thee fuming from his fire four christmas cheer comes once a year so the old saying asserted but will it come even once now that we are in the fell clutch of prohibition will christmas be as cheerful as it used to be when the mince pie lacks its full flavor and when the blue flame will never again flicker about the base of the plum pudding if our island ancestors had voted england dry a century ago washington irving could never have written his appetizing account of the christmas dinner and charles dickens would not have been able to take the hint from his american predecessor and to interlard his bold and broad narratives with incessant descriptions of eating and drinking how many hearty feasts dickens set before his readers with unfailing gusto dr holmes declared that we could gauge the rate of respiration of the poets by noting the meters they severally preferred the writers of octosyllabic verse being swifter breathers than their brethren who chose the stately and straight-backed pentameter perhaps we can guess at the relative digestive apparatus of the novelists by the frequency with which they deal with foods and feeding 
who can doubt that dickens had a stout stomach and that he was a trencherman to be compared only with rabelais and thackeray was the author of memorials of gormandizing the records of repasts we find in many an english novel make our mouths water and even the poets have left us carols of cookery and recipes in rhyme of which latter the most famous is sydney smith's recipe for a salad with a sublime assurance in its final quatrain then though green turtle fail though venison's tough and ham and turkey are not boiled enough serenely fool the epicure may say fate cannot harm me i have dined to-day yet we cannot disguise the fact that there is monotony in the menu that our meals lack variety whatever the skill of our cooks that we are confined to the flesh of bipeds and of quadrupeds except when we prefer the footless fish a new dish is as great a variety as a new sin there are now no new worlds for the gastronomic traveller to explore we do not crave the blubber dear to the dwellers near the north pole nor can darkest africa provide us with the baked elephant's foot which i have longed to taste ever since my early boyhood when i read about it in ballantine's gorilla hunters and in those same youthful years i wanted a slice of buffalo hump a delicacy now impossible of attainment although it was an everyday dish for the heroes of edward s ellis's dime novels which delighted the hearts of the lads of my time here in america we have lost the canvas back duck and we have never had the soul we may read about them we may peruse the text-books which prescribe the proper methods of cooking them but we cannot hope to feed on them still there is comfort of a kind in the cook-books themselves age cannot stale them nor custom wither their infinite variety there was a picture in punch long long ago which showed us a lady bountiful visiting one of her pensioners and asking if this dilapidated old woman had read a cook-book which had been bestowed upon her and to this question the pensioner responded yes my lady i read it but i'd rather have had the ingredients in default of the ingredients we must seek solace in the cookbook itself not so nourishing as it may be yet awakening delectable memories she was a sensible person that impoverished gentlewoman who had trained herself to find satisfaction in sipping her tea and munching her toast while she gave a loose to her imagination by reading the recipes out of the most expensive dishes as amply written out by a former chief of the kitchen of her majesty queen of england and empress of india 1919 end of chapter 11